0: On the record. On News Talk. Brought to you by PWC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets,
1: diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. Uh, A fairly uh, diverse uh, spread of stories on the front pages of today's papers is maybe a sign that there isn't a a single thing which is dominating people's minds. Although the Sunday Independent lead story does certainly suggest that there are stories uh, dominating people's minds. Um, They've commissioned a new opinion poll. As you know, they regularly ask people what are the main concerns that they have about the direction of the country. And today we discover that the cost of living crisis by now is far, by far, the biggest standalone issue of public concern, with two thirds of people declaring it to be the most important matter facing the country. Anxiety over price rises has increased by a significant eleven points in a month, which has relegated other issues like housing (37%), healthcare (25%), and the war in Ukraine (20%) in importance. The level of concern over the war in Ukraine. This is quite telling, maybe that that now the it's becoming a more established uh, news phenomenon. The level of concern over the war in Ukraine has fallen sharply in a month, with now only 20% of respondents naming it among the two biggest issues, and that is down 20% on the figure for the March poll. The April poll was conducted on Friday, just gone, in a week where more utility companies here announced massive double-digit price hikes for energy supply. The Sun Independent today also reveals that the Department of Finance says the government's response so far to the cost of living will hamper plans to cut taxes and introduce welfare increases in the budget. In a briefing paper dated a couple of months ago, the department said that further, Permanent increases in core spending this year would further reduce the amount available for measures in budget 2023. We might be able to talk about that with Eamon Ryan, the Minister for the Environment, when he's with us a little bit later in the programme. Also, on the front page of the Sunday Independent, briefly, a former acting Garda Commissioner and a retired Assistant Commissioner have tried to claim expenses amounting to €60,000 for attending the Disclosures Tribunal Dolan O'Kulon and Jack Nolan attempted to claim the money from Magadha Siakana but so far the force has so far declined to pay the vast majority of the men's expenses uh, if you read inside the paper there it suggests that maybe that the, uh, the two senior Gardaí are making something of a pointed gesture because of their standing or th- their general beliefs around uh, what the Disclosures Tribunal was trying to establish and whether it was necessarily uh, a, a worthwhile exercise or whether they do believe that they are entitled to compensation for the time that they had to spend down there uh, that's the front page of the Sunday Independent Anyway, front page of the business post, taxpayers face 13 billion black hole by 2030, officials warned. God, what a cheery story to wake you up this census Sunday. Taxpayers face having to fill a potential 13 billion euro black hole in the public finances by the end of the decade as Ireland's ageing population puts significant strain on the country's economic resources and existing tax revenues ebb away, a new report has warned. The stark warning, which comes as the government last week moved to address the pensions time bomb, was contained in a submission from the Department of Finance to the Commission on Taxation and Welfare. Officials in Pascal Donohue's department have warned that enormous, their word, costs associated with a rapidly aging population were on the way with the number of those people aged 65 or over set to grow significantly faster than the numbers at work health and pension costs created by the increasingly aging population would add 7 billion euro to the country's spending bill every year by 2030 while a further 6 billion euro in tax revenue currently collected by the state could be lost as those people move out uh, of working age Um, that is a, a cheery story um a cheery story well some people might find it cheery others maybe not so much on the front page of the business post and again we will ask Eamon Ryan about this later on Eamon Ryan is planning to curb the sale of SUVs by increasing the v- VRT on the vehicles due to their higher environmental emissions sports utility vehicles require more energy to move around than smaller cars due to their heavier weight and their poorer aerodynamics the business post understands that the transport minister has been discussing the matter with Green Party TDs who are keen to see changes brought in soon to reverse the continuing rise in sales of petrol, diesel and all electric SUVs Ryan told the door last week that he agreed there needed to be a shift in the share of the car market held by SUVs due to their energy inefficiency and also the increased safety risk they pose to pedestrians and cyclists. So we'll ask him about that when he's with us a little bit later on. Uh, And another instalment in the Business Post uh, Department of Health Recordings saga, I don't mean saga in a negative sense, but it's certainly a a long running story the paper has been bringing now. Uh, The party has obtained a meeting, or the, the newspaper rather, has obtained a recording of a meeting of the Department of Health's top officials on January the 20th of this year, wherein the Secretary General of the Department of Health, Robert Watt, tells his officials that he wants to pursue a minimalist approach to slaughter care because of his fears that it will lead to endless claims from unions uh, something which we may get to discuss uh, in a couple of minutes time uh, front page of the Sunday Times uh, Vladimir Zelensky the president of Ukraine did not mean to imply that Ireland was unsupportive of his country when he spoke to EU leaders last month and he will explain his remarks when he addresses the Oireachtas on Wednesday all of this is according to the Ukrainian ambassador Larissa Gurasko, who has been speaking to Justine McCarthy for the Sunday Times today she says president Zelensky is grateful to Ireland for its support and strong stance with regard to Ukraine's membership of the eu and in support of ukrainian immigrants here she says some newspapers and some people interpreted his words as an estimation of ireland's uh, support for ukraine membership of the eu but no no it's quite a different thing it was a huge scandal for nothing she says i think our president will clarify everything to the oireachtas as you might know vladimir zelensky is due to address uh, a joint sitting of the dawn channeled by video link uh, this coming wednesday morning and um, also on the front page of the sunday times on the general ambit of uh, all matters russian The decision to expel four Russian diplomats, John Mooney tells us this morning, was taken in response to increased espionage by the Kremlin, including efforts to cultivate contacts with dissident republicans and loyalist paramilitaries in an effort to undermine confidence in the EU Russia's intelligence services are encouraging fringe groups and paramilitaries in Northern Ireland to stoke social unrest Russia is also amplifying sectarian and hate speech posted online by loyalists who oppose the Northern Ireland protocol in order to undermine trust in governing institutions one of the four diplomats ordered to leave the state last week was a Russian military intelligence officer working under diplomatic cover out of the Russian embassy in Orwell Road in Dublin. Uh, My understanding, by the way, is that those four diplomats who were expelled earlier this week are all due to leave the state uh, through Dublin Airport today. And finally, for now, uh, the Irish Mail on Sunday front page story. Ireland's hospital overcrowding crisis has potentially led to more than 14,500 patient deaths. From 2015 to last month, figures obtained by the Irish Mail on Sunday can reveal this represents more than 2,000 deaths a year, likely caused by waiting times of up to 36 hours and beyond for admission to a hospital bed. And this is the first time that an estimate of deaths calculated, or connected to deaths, delays, in emergency care in Ireland has been calculated. This is new research in the Emergency Medicine Journal, I told that basically this is the first time as you say uh, that this has been uh, ever done and one of the study authors uh, data analyst named Steve Black has told the paper that this is a conservative way of doing the calculation you can safely say that it might well be worse and he says that the longer stays in A&E and the longer time it takes to be admitted to a hospital bed formally uh, means a longer delay in administering painkillers and antibiotics and for other vital treatments and effectively meaning that the longer you spend before formal admission then the less likely you are to effectively come back out of the hospital so that's our panoply of uh, fairly depressing stories on the the front page of the Sunday Independent. Just before I come to our our newspaper panellists, we have uh, Lauren Boland of the Journal.ie and Mick Clifford, special correspondent uh, with the Irish Examiner. Uh, Mick, you have a longstanding uh, professional and and personal relationship with Charlie Bird. The front pages of of all today's papers are of Charlie uh, yesterday on top of Croke Patrick, which is a a significant physical achievement for anyone, but particularly given uh, Charlie Bird's current prognosis, it's a remarkable thing. Uh, But he's done a
0: remarkable thing yesterday with the sheer volume of money he's raised. He did, Gavin. I know I wouldn't say I have a long-standing uh, personal relationship with Charlie. I know him. I know him well and I, I've encountered him a lot and always got on great with the fella. And um, if, if, I, if I was to describe one feature of Charlie Bird, it would be infectious enthusiasm. That's what I always found about him when I encountered him professionally and mm-hmm. even when I met him. Um, and, you know, I, I have to say I have real mixed emotions about all the coverage today. It is a fantastic achievement Mm. by Charlie he's hoping now it looks like they'll raise over 2 million for charity the fact that he did that that he actually physically made the climb himself Mm -hmm. what he has managed to do in bringing so many people with him and then you know the other reality is the man is facing into what I would consider possibly one of the most cruelest forms of uh, terminal illness Mm. but I have to say his character is really shining through, as I say, that kind of infectious enthusiasm mm. that somebody dealing with what he's dealing with has been able to do this. I just think. Um it's really outstanding.
1: Yeah, and that, that sort of infectious enthusiasm, as you say, is, is particularly vital now more than ever as he faces into the, the health battle that he's going to have. Of course, Charlie uh, diagnosed last year with modern urine disease, which is a disease which has a significant impact on the nervous system. And I think, you know, particularly when Charlie is someone whose voice we all know and someone yeah. who is a communicator, for that to be one of the first ways in which this, this disease manifests is such a, an awful and cruel way and for just, him.
0: Just last night, Kevin, I was sitting down and... Uh, it was a, a, a kind of a highlights program. Pat shot a program, RT and did a shot of Charlie. I think it was on Gay Burns last late late show, mm. nineteen ninety nine. And you're looking at the guy, and I, he looks he looks about twenty five. And I calculated <laughs> Charlie was at least fifty then, like you yeah. know. And even there today, the man is seventy two years of age. He could pass for twenty thirty years younger, yeah. but. Um, it's really you know I, I, I think it's fantastic that the country has got behind him the way mm-hmm. it has as you said he, he is that national kind of figure in, in a very different way in in a very straight way and uh, what he's done I, I, I think is really outstanding altogether
1: Yeah no it is a remarkable achievement and congratulations to him and of course it's still possible to donate uh, to the fundraiser which he's engaging for, for MND and for other uh, terminal illnesses so uh, congratulations Charlie we're all uh, very proud of you and hope that you're you're keeping well um, On the, the topics uh, that are actually making the newspapers today um. I'm inclined just to, to start uh, with uh, Mick and with with Lauren Boland. Um, With that story on the front page of the Sunday Independent about um, what exactly the four Russian diplomats may have been up to, um, and John Mooney suggesting that they were trying to cultivate links with uh, dissident Republicans and some loyalist paramilitaries to generally create an air of uh, instability. Um, One thing which I find very striking about it is that Ireland was one of four countries this week to evict some uh, Russian diplomats, the others being Belgium, the Netherlands and the Czech Republic. And they were all willing to say out loud that it was because those people were engaged in some sort of espionage or intelligence gathering, which was not the usual functions of diplomacy. And for the life of me, I'm not really sure why Ireland won't just go on record and say the same thing that the others have said.
0: Very true. One possible reason is that, as, as John Mooney points out in the Sunday Times, what their, their, their interaction with uh, dissident paramilitaries, uh, both uh, so called Republican and loyalist, may be one of the reasons for that and whatever that implication that might be for mm. the security of the state. But beyond that, I wait, agree with you. It impossible possible to surely say, like to
1: say, right, they were engaged in espionage and, and not get into the dot the across yeah, yeah, the t's no, it's what a fair point. It is
0: it, it is a fair point, but it, it, it's typical. <laughs> it's typical of the way, and I've been professionally over the years, Gavin, i had a lot of dealings, particular with the area of the Department of Justice, and uh, it is very typical of the way that uh, the state is run and... Us, the the uh, what you call and, and the mushroom theory of uh, keeping us in the dark and feeding us manure. Uh, <laughs> basically, everything is done behind a uh, a big steel door. But why? Well, it's a big question. Culturally, Do you go back to a post-colonial thing? Do you go back to the Dublin Castle syndrome mm. of the those outside the enemy? I don't know but it, yeah. I, I think there's definitely something there that's very long-standing in that respect.
1: Uh, Lauren, any thoughts on why it might be the case that Ireland is refusing to, to dot the i's and cross the t's and say exactly what these guys were getting up to when other countries have been perfectly happy to put it out there?
2: Yeah, I think it feeds into the, the sort of the line that's been coming out from the government since, since the start of the invasion around um, wanting to to keep diplomatic ties with Russia for the sake of Irish citizens who are still over there. Mm. Um, I think people are getting maybe increasingly tired of hearing kind of that from the government. Obviously, we don't want anyone from Ireland in Russia to be, you know, put in harm's way. But at the same time, there's there's only so much um, patience that I think people will have with, with things like Russian diplomats in Ireland spying. Um, I think the, the, the writers in, in the Sunday papers today um, have very little time for for the <laughs> yeah. government's response. I think uh, Michael Brennan on page fourteen of the Sunday Business Post he calls you know the government's line about it being oh that their activities weren't. Uh you know, in, in line with what's expected of diplomats. He says that, you know, that was diplomatic speak for saying that they were suspected of spying. Mm. Um, and then Justine McCarthy in the Sunday Times, she puts it as uh, this gobbledygook <laughs> is designed to tell us nothing. Um, I think those two quotes, they, they really sum it up, yeah. kind of situation that we're well, seeing.
1: Is it maybe a case that we, we get the best of both worlds because it it's clearly inferred by the, that language and they are not at all denying that there was some kind of espionage, but they get the benefit of like the the political diplomacy of not having to, to put a label on it out loud.
2: I, I don't know if they're getting any benefit from it because the response from the Russian embassy was still to say, look, you know, expect repercussions. Mm. that they, they were, you know, I think the line was uh, the embassy proceeds from the assumption that such a step by the Irish side will not go unanswered. So I don't think the Russian embassy kind of gives, you know, cares too much one way or the other where Ireland comes out and says it you know the the reality is the diplomats have been expelled and I think that's what what they're going to take issue with
1: Uh, Are you at all surprised about the remarks from the Ukrainian ambassador who's also on the front page of the Sunday Times today saying that uh, Vladimir Zelensky didn't at all mean to rebuke Irish neutrality or to suggest that we were somehow unwilling partners in Ukraine's struggle Uh, this obviously going back to the video address that he made to the European Council 10 days ago where he said Ireland was well almost mm-hmm. in his words a supporter and and maybe some of that being lost in translation
2: yeah, I think she describes it as you know it. It was a huge scandal for nothing. I don't think it necessarily was a huge scandal. I think people were more interested in seeing that perspective from Ukraine about Ireland's actions. You know, I don't mm. think people were were outraged by it. I think, if anything, some people sort of agreed with it. They were thinking, yeah, what is Ireland doing? We should be doing more. And, he, and here's the president of Ukraine saying that. Um, although although now, as you say, the the Ukrainian ambassador is kind of saying, oh, no, that wasn't what he saying. So I think it will be interesting to hear the the conversations in the Oroctus this week when Zelensky speaks to the.
0: I I, I thought certainly through our media, there was a reaction to it. Oh, my God, what does he mean? Does he not realise what we're doing? The, the, where, where has he so gone wrong?
1: that we're a country That's very thin-skinned when Absolutely it comes to what And what, what those on the outside Think yeah. of us and That o- only we are allowed To pillory our own leaders Exactly No one else is allowed to Absolutely It's like Homer Simpson Standing
0: over and <laughs> exactly. Saying only I may abuse the child Exactly that, that, that was the impression I got And I mean uh, It's nearly as if Now the country can Breathe a collective sigh of relief We understand that he misspoke Or something yeah. you know <laughs> But it, it, said, it says a hell of a lot About us Rather than uh, rather than anything about Zelensky, mm. after all, like let's face it, I think he is a bit more on his plate than to worry about uh, perceptions and uh, very uh, fragile egos that we may have in this country. <laughs> yeah. Um. Anything else on the topic of, of Russia and
1: Ukraine matters? Uh, making jumping into today's papers. Well, you want the, to in,
0: in the Sunday Times, um, there's a report from uh, Louise O'Callaghan, um, about retreating uh, Russians and what's been discovered. About the type of war crimes they've mm. committed, murdering mm. civilians.
1: There's a particular city I think called called Bucha, which is now only the the events of which are only beginning to come to light. Yeah, yeah Russians and, have evacuated and, there. And,
0: and, and you know. Th- Always, as they say, truth is the first casualty war. We always have to be careful, particularly when uh, reports come out about brutality and that sort of thing about mm. what may be propaganda. But this certainly on the basis of the reporting that's being done in it, neutrally has very much to ring of truth about it. And it does look pretty shocking. People tied up and just shot in their homes and that sort of thing. Uh, there's also video footage in social media, mm. the advancing Ukrainians, bodies on the streets, hands tied again. It looks uh, it looks pretty brutal, the whole thing, to yeah, be honest.
1: Th- there's an interview with uh, an eight-year-old lady called Maria, uh, who is one of the people that's been left behind in one of these neighbourhoods, and she was largely unaware of what was going on in other houses until the Russians came to retreat. Um, I'll read you a passage from, from Louise's piece, which is on page nine of the Sunday Times today. Her neighbours in a neat brick house four doors down had been tied hand and foot and killed... Down the road, territorial defence fighters said that they had found a basement where 18 bodies, men and women and children, as young as 14, lay dead, their bodies mutilated. This is what the Russian forces have left behind as they retreat, uh, destroying everything they go. Mines have been hidden in the corpses that litter the streets. Mind. And, and that's also, yeah. by the way, that's backed up in another one of the papers today. I think yeah. the, the Mail on Sunday has a piece today as well about this idea that some of the corpses laid behind have effectively been booby-trapped. Um, blackened homes are left hollowed out and burnt. Newly built datches, their gates torn open, are studded with bullets from the firefights that raged here between Ukrainian and Russian forces a few days ago. The soldiers and civilians in the areas retaken by the Ukrainian army around Kiev in the past few days have endured weeks of fighting and the horrors of occupation to push out an enemy that most predicted would destroy them in days. Dozens of towns and suburbs to the east, west and north of Kiev have been retaken by the Ukrainian army and the Russians have retreated from the gates of the capital to areas near the northern border. And yet there is no celebration and no joy.
2: Yeah. It's just horrifying, isn't it? And I think when we're talking about the war, we often, you know, we're, we're talking about things like sanctions or these kind of, you know, diplomatic things between the, the Russian and the Irish embassy. And obviously those are all uh, important factors and they mm. need to be talked about. But it's easy to actually kind of forget that very human element of it um, until you sit down and you read it and those kind of horrifying reports like that um, and what these people are actually dealing with.
1: Yeah, which, which does make you wonder... This might sound like a very highfalutin or very uh, airy-fairy intangible concept, but like, in the entire world recognises that and would see that and go, like that's war crimes, just the, the, the targeting of civilians in that way, civilians who have no military engagement at all, is clearly a war crime. So at some point, clearly all the evidence of that was going to emerge. And yet Russia appears to be completely unbothered by that and completely like untethered by the norms of international diplomacy or, or international
0: confidence on the rules of war that it itself is signed up to. Well one element that I think is if you think of any conflict, the land based conflict that we've seen even most recent years going back to through the twentieth century, through centuries, do we ever have wars where these type of war crimes are not committed? That's true. I mean, even mm-hmm. for example, you look at the World War Two, the Allies always this halo that was around them and then it emerges afterwards. They did some pretty horrible things as well. and uh, the other element to it is one wonders whether some of this started occurring when they realised that this great victory they had predicted in a couple of days was not going to occur and that ultimately they'd be retreating and did some of these horrendous crimes were they committed as they retreated and, and, and the kind of mindset that was there then. One way or the other it's utter war crime and unfortunately again the chances of anybody having to answer for it are not very high.
1: Yeah and then of course a bit of me was thinking when you read that about the the state of what's been left behind that you'd need some sort of major... Marshall Plan style investment to try and rebuild the country and then you wonder why would it only be Ukraine that gets that sort of thing because it's not as if there aren't plenty of countries in the Middle East and beyond Lauren that have had been similarly completely destroyed areas of Syria part most of Yemen at this point uh, in rubble and there isn't the same moral hand-wringing about what's been left in those countries as there is in Europe.
2: Yeah, I think we've seen the, the kind of response that we've gotten from countries in Europe to Ukraine has been it, 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 you know it it simply isn't the kind of response that the countries you've mentioned did get to their, mm. um to their conflicts. I think uh, just going back to the point about um Russia's war crimes, I think whatever about being held to international standards they're not even operating by um by what they themselves are saying they're going to do so say during the week when they said and that's obviously no surprise to anyone, mm. um but during the week when they said they were going to um to reduce military activity in the areas around Kyiv and kind of the north of the country, after some talks in Turkey went seemed to go more successfully than previous talks had gone. They said they reduced their military activity. That didn't happen. Um, you know, cities were still shelled overnight. There was there was massive damage and destruction to, to civilian infrastructure. Um, and you know, President Zelensky came out I think the day after that talks, and he was saying, yeah, look, um, the sirens are still going. Like you know, we can't. This yeah. is a positive signal. What uh, Russia's coming out and saying, but you know. To put the word, you know, money where the mouth is, kind of idea, and that that didn't happen.
1: Yeah, um, I I was going to ask you if there was anything that jumped out for you about things in the papers, but I see you've got a spread from the Sunday Independent today, and you've already dug out the highlighter to pick out some (laughs) choice passages.
2: Yeah, I think you know there's this there's this interesting report actually from um about a, a group of volunteers who went to Poland um in Teslas and drove back seventy two refugees from Poland. It's kind of a it's one of these sort of rare good news stories, I mm. suppose. Um, and it's quite nice. You know, the report says that um the volunteers are now there. So the refugees are are in Ireland now. Traveled from from Poland back to here. Took the ferry from France. Um, and now they have a, a WhatsApp group that's kind of you know being used to help people sort out accommodation. Um. You know things like organising day trips or, or or trips to the dentist or other things that the family needs, um, and and that's quite that's quite nice and and obviously massive. Um, you know, a massive feat for 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 those volunteers to have gone mm-hmm. over and done. It's really excellent. I think the other thing on this page, that's really interesting, is the the CINDO polling on, and this is kind of a different topic entirely, almost. But the CINDO polling on um people's stances on Irish neutrality, yeah. And this joining was a, NATO. a dominant
1: theme this time last week mm-hmm. because there was a, a Red Sea poll which had some slightly contradictory answers about whether people wanted to join NATO while still also maintaining neutrality. And the CINDO today has. Helped to straighten that out a bit.
2: Yeah, so in a referendum on Irish neutrality, when people were asked how they would vote, sixty-two percent said they would be um in favour, twenty-four percent were against, thirteen percent were unsure. Um and then in a question on should Ireland join NATO, uh fifty-seven percent said no, only twenty seven percent said yes, and then sixteen percent were unsure. It's a fairly sizable chunks of people who are unsure, and mm. I think that speaks to obviously how how you know how changeable an issue it is as well uh, yeah. how you learn more things and you know what side of the issue to come down on um, it's it's they're, they're, they're definitely interesting results Yeah, but well, I think subject uh, to change as well as things, as yes, things proceed
1: uh, but there's certainly uh, I think a little bit more reassuring that the, the findings are not as contradictory as last week because I, I certainly know I think I saw you in tweeting about it Mick the idea that people were simultaneously in favour of staying neutral and in favour of joining NATO yeah. and not really understanding the dissonance between them A
0: couple of major problems but one n- neutrality you know th- there is an emotional Impact in terms of uh, the phrase itself, but what exactly is neutrality? I think that's something that needs to be trashed out. The other thing is that this idea that's propagated that it's a binary decision between neutrality or joining NATO, and that ergo, you could be uh, this notion of sending young men and women off to war and this type of thing, which I think is for the birds. There's an issue is there. It for the birds? Sending, sending young men and women off to foreign wars? Well, if if a NATO member was to be
1: attacked, then would there not be the the mutual defence obligations where where Ireland would have to send, Ireland
0: hypothetically in NATO. Sorry, you're correct. Would have to send those people I'm I'm talking on the basis. I don't believe there is any traction to the notion of joining NATO. But that does not follow that therefore uh, the big majority of people want to be neutral. I mean, there's a whole area of, for example, do we have common interests with other Western European democracies and do we have any agreement that if one of them are attacked, mm. wh- wh- what is our role yeah. then in that scenario? Or or bring it back to another thing. A lot of the thinking on neutrality dates from the Second World War. There were very good reasons why Ireland, yeah. at that time, stayed neutral, mm. principally to do with our relationship with the UK was just coming to an end in that. If a Hitler emerged today, would it, in Europe, for example, would it be sustainable that we could say, well, we're neutral, we're not in favour of fascism, we're not against it, we're neutral. It's it's a complicating, and that's why I think mm. this notion of a citizens assembly, it is one uh, A topic that I think would be very well Well, suited for trashing out in one form or another. Yeah, there's something to be said for it actually because just when you mentioned there and and
1: Lawrence pointed out the findings of that that referendum poll that 62% of people would vote in favour of a constitutional amendment to enshrine neutrality and yet last week's poll said that there would be a majority in favour of of getting rid of the current constitutional ban on Ireland participating in Common European Defence. So it's kind of hard to know really where people stand and maybe a Citizens' Assembly would be a forum to tease some of that out. Um, Differing thoughts on whether Ireland should call out the apparent actions of um, the Russian diplomats who are being uh, asked to leave the country today. Um, Anthony on Twitter says, quite simply, cowardice is the reason for the softly, softly approach by our government and it permeates every decision that they make. COVID and following other countries' decisions is a perfect example of that. Somebody else says, I'm not sure why it's so important for the state to specifically call out Russian spying. We all know that's what NBC's have to get up to, especially those that are hostile to the country. Saying it out loud doesn't add anything. That's from Brian in Dublin. And Colm says that perhaps the individuals were not involved in espionage, which is gathering information, but instead, they were involved in attempts to spread disinformation to promote an anti-EU agenda. For example, it is noticeable that the volume of bot activity online has significantly decreased since Russia was shut off from social media platforms. That is from Column. Uh, let us know what you think. 53106 is the number for your text. On the record, NT is our hashtag on Twitter. We'll be back with more from the papers from Lauren and Mick after this. Uh, I was just noting during the ad break, we have an awful habit of doing the cash machine just before we are talking about the rising cost of living and how useful it would be to have that money in your back pocket. Uh, it is pretty evident today from the front page of the Sindo Lauren um, that the rising cost of living is now a primary concern for an awful lot of people.
2: It is that so the polling from the Cindo asked people what um of a list of issues that they they considered are the most important, say for the government to deal with as a priority. Sixty five percent said cost of living, so that's up eleven percent. Um, and where where that's been made up, I suppose is housing has dropped six percent is kind of being listed as a top priority. Um, and the Ukraine war fell twenty percent. Um, in people's priorities, so it, it, there's no doubt that cost of living is at the forefront of people's minds and mm. and there's no wonder why it would be when when you, when you look at even in the last week or two um how all of the electricity companies are, have been putting out statements saying that the you know electricity bills and gas bills are going to be rising exponentially so i think i've uh, for example i think electricity the, their electricity bills said they'd rise for the average customer by twenty four percent, gas by thirty two point three, yeah, yeah. and I think dual fuel bills by twenty seven point five, um, and that's kind of uh, you know we've seen that across the electricity companies this week. Um, it's it's uh, it's it's hugely dramatic um, and I mean it's hard to, it's no wonder that that's kind of what's at the top of people's minds now. Yeah,
1: um, Mick I suppose it, it's worth pointing out as well that the cost of living is not just driven by the an, an electricity bill but pretty much every other domestic service utility bills broadband or TV or anything else that they're all going up and then of course the continued price of, of putting fuel in the car as well. Absolutely you
0: know it's, it's and it's very understandable that it, it, it is such a priority. Uh, the big issue, I think, Gavin, and a lot of it is where you're ta- going to target uh, assistance. I mean, we're after coming out of a pandemic and there was a, a huge divide in that pandemic between those of us, and I'd include myself, who were fortunate enough to be able to work from home, yeah. who uh, whose work was not interrupted and all of that, and people who ended up in the pub, for instance. And also that what emerged there is that there are record savings as a result in one section of society, which is grand. The other section of society, it's going to be a double whammy now. Anybody who's on low income, renters, what have you, all that that lower down the socioeconomic ladder, they're really getting walloped now. And and you've heard repeated stories, all very genuine about people, for example, not being able to keep the heat on the whole time or having to choose between food and fuel and what have you. And targeting. Again, we're pointing out that yesterday, some people having to choose between eating and heating. Yeah, targeting. In particular, that section of society, that's a challenge in itself for the government. It's also, unfortunately, a, a political issue to the extent that uh, if you say, for instance, the broad middle class, the heart of the middle class who can perhaps take this a little better than those further down the chain, mm. they're also the heart of the electorate. Um. I know I'm asking you a question here now about uh, lip service
1: and optics rather than actions. But we can only judge things on, on lip service for the time being because the government is still, we we hear, planning some sort of measures around the cost of living or energy prices. And we don't know what they are. We'll ask Eamon Ryan after 12 o'clock. Um, but do you get the impression from the government that they are actually uh, paying sufficient lip service or that people feel like uh, that the government hears where they're at? Because... There's a bit of me that thinks that if Sinn Féin have gone into leaders' questions now for five out of the last six days, have raised the cost of living, that they're raising it because they are trying to expose the differential where Sinn Féin sounds like it cares about it and that they don't believe the government does sound like it cares about it.
0: Well, you could put it that way or perhaps in, ter- in political terms it's shooting fish in a barrel, because there's, there's no question mm-hmm. that this is an issue that is affecting huge tracts of society to differing extents. And there's no question that an opposition will always reflect on the worries and um, can do so in, in, in that respect. I, I don't think it's that the government are not placing sufficient emphasis on it. I think a certain amount of it is that so much of it is beyond their control mm. Uh, mm. I know that there's uh, a lot of people in the political world who've been uh, very very
1: carefully noting how many times Sinn Féin have raised the cost of living uh, when they have slots and leaders questions and not for example, the efforts that are needed to to uh, accommodate Ukrainian refugees, but maybe the Lauren, as you're pointing out there, that the the rank of priorities that maybe it illustrates that Sinn Fein is is closer to where where the electorate are. Um do you think that they the government is is at least giving the impression that it cares enough about this, or that it hears people when when they have such concerns around managing to make ends meet?
2: I mean, they're certainly mentioning it, but in terms of whether that is whether it's kind of whether people are accepting it is enough i think the answer is absolutely not i don't think i think you would be very difficult now to find someone who's said yes i'm happy with how the government is responding well, to the mm, cost of living mm. crisis you know i think quite frankly you know no they they might be speaking better than the doll you know in the media but i don't i don't think that's translating into people saying yes i think the government is doing enough um and per, i mean perhaps you know nobody's ever going to say the government's doing enough about anything but i think you know particularly this is really something that yeah. is impacting people's everyday lives in a, in a material, in a tangible way, um, you know, what you're mentioning about eating versus eating. Like, it's these, these aren't just kind of abstract issues. They are things that are the d- lived reality now, day to day. And no, it's not kind of um, communicating that enough is being done or, or you know, turning that into action.
1: Mm. Um, so an independent poll uh, also asks people whether they've uh, noticed significant increases in certain areas. Um, 86% of people say yes, that they had... Um, noticed a significant increase in the cost of transport, um, maybe the other 14% are cyclists. 87% of people say that they've noticed an increase in home heating, maybe the other 13 have heat pumps. Um, 89% of people say that they've noticed home electricity. I don't have a pithy line for what the other 11% are because I I can't imagine that they they wouldn't have noticed. Um, 85% of people have noticed a significant increase in the cost of uh, food and groceries, and then even other areas, entertainment, 28%, medical costs, 25%, and by the way, 12% of people still saying that they are noticing the cost of their rent or their mortgage uh, going up as well so other underlying issues uh, also still there Um, but one other issue and and I don't mean to to say this as as if to play down the the rising cost of inflation but there is one specific aspect of um, the consumer price index which is obviously inflated Mick Clifford we pointed this out on page 8 of the Sun Independent today um, that minimum unit pricing has, yeah. in, and has notably increased the cost of alcohol and therefore that in itself is driving up inflation
0: Yeah it, and it was going to be the case it was always going to be the case when it was introduced and I suppose you could say um, making a kind of a comparison it's a bit like the carbon tax Uh, politically it was considered something that had to be done and this instance had to be done as far as politics was concerned in terms of public health and therefore they brought it in knowing that it would increase the price. Not for one second, I think, did anybody in any context think that in the early months of such a regime we'd Mm. be going through a major uh, inflationary crisis anyway. But uh, it's certainly notable. But um, I I, I don't think that's that's a, a reason not to have brought it in. Mm. But it, it adds into the general mix of uh, of away prices. It's
1: definitely it's one of those that whole that thing about little things tripping you up that you know, that you might argue that from a public health perspective, Lauren, that it's always a good idea to try and disincentivize destructive behaviour, but they, they can't have imagined that it was going to co- coincide with the time when everything else was so dear as well.
2: No, and I mean the point in, in McNakes about the, the carbon tax and kind of the comparison to the this minimum unit pricing is, is interesting in terms of, yeah, these uh, these I guess increases in prices that, you know, at the time when they were being planned, um, seemed on face level, you know, okay, this will be the impact that those have. And now when things have been absolutely turned on their head, I mean, we've seen like Sinn Féin coming out again and again, Calling for the the carbon tax, the mm. the increase that's planned for May to be to be cut. Um, obviously in the in the context of climate, I mean the carbon tax is 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 a very controversial measure. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, even among climate scientists, some would agree. You know, policy kind of climate experts, some would agree with it, some don't. Um, and you know, we know Sinn Fein obviously doesn't. Um, I think that's you know. Um, that's an it's an interesting point, Mick.
1: Yeah. Uh, still quite a few texts coming in about uh, the war in Ukraine and uh, that point we were making just before the last ad break around the costs of rebuilding. Uh, Hugh says that the war in Ukraine is not over and until it's sorted that there is no point in theorising about rebuilding. Nobody thought the Russians would invade and yet they did and they're not gone anywhere. What Ukraine needs right now is not rebuilding. It needs more weapons. And somebody else says it's a BS argument saying that there's more concern and coverage of the Russian war in Ukraine than in Syria, etc. The Russian invasion is the biggest conflict in World War II in Europe since World War Two, the wars in the Middle
0: East and Africa have been going on for years says that texture. well that's a bit the war in Syria only started 2010 Yemen hasn't been going on I, I think it's really down to proximity I think it's down like there's there, for, on, on the most basic level there's talk of fast tracking Ukraine getting into the EU which yeah. is the, is the entity we we would identify with as a country um, Syria Yemen Makes their suffering no less, but it's just a question of how relatable, I suppose, it is mm. to us in Western Europe.
1: Uh, we're going to take another quick break here because I do have to make time for the next one. Uh, I do want to ask you both if you've given any thought to what you're putting in your census time capsule, which, of course, you're supposed to be filling out tonight. If you haven't already uh, tried to be efficient with your time and done it already, uh, let me know what you're putting in uh, your census time capsule. Five three one zero six are on the record. NT as our hashtag. After the break, talking about that and about Joe Biden's midterm woes. Don't go away. You always know that there's a politician on the text line because they will sign their name to the text. So I asked you just before the break, what were you going to think about putting in your census time capsule when you fill it out this evening? Councillor Neil Ring of Dublin's North Inner City has replied to say that he will be putting in his time capsule have Mayo won an All-Ireland in the last 100 years, uh, which, you know, could be an odyssey that will go on. But let's just point out that Mayo at least will be playing Division One football uh, next season, <laughs> not like the Dubs. Uh, they'll have to slog it out in Park Talton like the rest of us uh, next summer. Um, there's a lot in today's papers and one one theme in today's papers has one eye on the forthcoming American midterm elections. That's the elections for a third of the Senate and the entirety of of the House of Representatives, which are coming up in this November. And there are lots of expectations that the Democrats are going to lose control, at the very least, of the House of Representatives. But they're also going a little bit further and wondering whether Joe Biden has a second term in him. And if he doesn't, where the Democrats are going to go to find somebody else to fill his shoes on the ticket in two years time let's talk to seth barrett tillman who's an associate professor at maynooth university Um, seth thank you for taking our call this morning Um, all of this talk about the democrats being set to lose the house it's all based on opinion polling of joe biden and that they don't believe that his handling of general affairs is is too hot Um, and yet there seems to be a lot of uh, polling supporting america's actions or inactions thus far on ukraine how do you explain that the contradiction or can you explain it Well, I
3: don't know that the average American is going to vote on the Ukraine issue. Uh, I'd I'd simply start with that. Uh, What they're probably most looking forward to is a coherent policy that's just consistent with what they've seen over the course of a lifetime. Um, And, uh, you know, I'm not 100 percent sure they're getting that. Um, You know, the American people elected Biden um, and they knew he was old and uh to some extent he's going to you know as the way all of us can but including some older people from time to time he's going to misspeak but when when his own people you know after he speaks try to help the president recover and the president doesn't agree with the rewriting of what he's just said then they mm-hmm. begin to wonder whether they're getting a coherent message from the administration and that's what we've seen over the ukraine issue so it, it, it's not just the the people might be interested in the Ukraine issue is that they're wondering what the policy itself is. Uh, and that, that probably weakens the strength of the administration going into the midterms and going into the next mm. election.
1: Um, I, I was uh, in the US myself for a week when I was following the Taoiseach on his, his Washington visits uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I, I was struck that some things are universal and that a lot of Americans are still concerned about the cost of living and particularly the price of, of filling up your car. There was a, a lot of concern around the price of uh, you know a, a tank of gas going beyond um, $5 a gallon. Um, do people understand that, that it's not necessarily within the president's gift to, to govern the cost of living? living, or that there's limits to what he can do? Because uh, a lot of people seem to be holding him personally responsible for that.
3: Uh, Well, um, the president appoints the governors of the Federal Reserve, and inflation is historically largely a monetary phenomenon that is in the control of the government. Not not of the president of the United States directly, but certainly of his appointees. So uh, I agree with you that the president shouldn't be held responsible for every turn of the economy but for, with regard to major things like employment numbers and inflation it, it is the customary view to hold the administration responsible and the administration is the president.
1: Um, so we obviously have the midterms coming up and I'll ask you about the, the, the general election the presidential uh, just after that but the midterms are coming up and the midterms are you can argue maybe slightly curious because people may want to cast a verdict or consider it as something of a referendum on the presidency and yet the president isn't the guy on the ticket. So you, He's not you, on the ticket yeah. now. So you sort of then wonder what, what is the actual influence or whether it is possible or whether it is all that meaningful um, that the president do anything for the midterms when um, the the country, I guess, is just going to vote but one it, way anyway. It's,
3: not, it's really not so different here. When in, in Ireland, when people vote for members of the European Parliament, often that is a way of expressing happiness or concern with the current government in the country as opposed to the issues that are, in fact, mm. European issues. So it's not uncommon that if the administration is popular or unpopular, that's reflected in how people vote um, in the midterm elections, even if the administration isn't really on the ballot. And also, of course, the president is the party leader uh, for the Democratic Party. So every Democrat is in fact running with president to some extent, mm. even those who are running away from the president, as some of them are. Yeah. Um, so this isn't uncommon. Uh, m- historically, the administration has taken a hit, whatever the administration is, in the midterms and lost seats. It's very unusual for the administration to be so popular that it stays e- breaks even mm. or gains seats during the midterms. The usual question for the midterms is how many seats are going to be lost, and is it within historic norms, or will it be a blowout and more seats than are expected in a midterm or, in fact, lost.
1: Mm. Um, um, sorry to interrupt you, Seth, but just with, with, with yeah. I then on, on the next presidential election. and you, you mentioned that when people elected Biden, they, they knew his age. Uh, they knew that he was going to yeah. be 82 at the time of, of the next election. A lot of people mm-hmm. who might support the Democrats or favour them might have thought that even if he was only going to be a one-term guy, that he would have Kamala Harris on the ticket, she would be a natural successor and that she might be able to, to carry the torch that, uh, as, I'm, I'm as something sure, of a successor.
3: Uh, I'm sure many people did think that, but Biden hasn't announced he's not running again, and the presumption I think is that an administration aims for two terms, if only because the minute the administration the president announces he's not running again, he really loses influence on Capitol Hill for mm. the remainder of his term.
1: and he'd have to um, do it in about twelve months, really, wouldn't he, in order to give time for a full slate of candidates and for a healthy primary to, to get going
3: um if if opponents want to run they want to run they, they it's, it's not the, the incumbent president's job to facilitate his opponents or or other people who might want to step in should he want to bow out people who are deeply committed to being president of the united states have to make that judgment call on their own um and and i'm sure everyone understands that the president may change his mind late in the process and believe me if there are serious candidates they're getting their own campaigns in order mm. just to be ready, should he not run.
1: Is it something though of a failing of the Democrats to try and cultivate an obvious successor generation, or, or is this the, that, the, the, the pitfall that we always fall into? Because you could say... There, there, you, you could... I would
3: say parties don't cultivate. Candidates cultivate themselves. There, there's no room where the Democratic Party exists in a void, where it says, who could we favor and who could we help? That That's a myth. If if there's a strong candidate out there, that candidate has to decide for themselves whether they're going to put their name on the ballot paper. Uh, The idea that there's this party apparatus that's helpful to would-be candidates,
0: Mm.
3: no. It's just not the
0: way—it's
3: not— it's not the way part, the party structure works at the presidential level in the United States, or to tell you the truth, even at the state
1: level. Yeah, I guess it might be a very Irish outlook, this idea that it's up to the party to cultivate candidates rather for them to, to uh, come There really forward.
3: is no party. The, the party is just a telephone number and a place to donate money, which, and then that money is just funneled to the candidates anyway. Um, the, the party exists largely as a piece of paper and a place to file papers with the Federal Elections Commission. <laughs> it's, not, it's not really a full-time apparatus.
1: Um, great to have your insight this morning thanks very much for taking your call that is Seth Barrett-Tillman who's an associate professor at Maynooth University and a commentator on American politics speaking to us this morning um, on the record um, which I guess destroys the question I was going to put to you Mick which is that is it a, a failure of the party to at least make sure there isn't a standard bearer because we were saying all fair is it the case that there is a void or does a primary naturally create an obvious candidate who then comes forward and looks like they are the real Yeah theory? I suppose it's
0: chicken and egg stuff I mean Seth has a point like you know it, it is down to individuals to see who's of a calibre. What is really surprising is that there doesn't seem to be any slew of candidates, not to mind a single one. I mean, demographically, prior to two thousand and sixteen, there was a lot of thaw- talk that the 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 Democrat or the Republicans base was shrinking, particularly uh, the Caucasian white base and that sort of thing, and that this was going to be a winning run for the Democrats. It hasn't turned out that way. And the thing about Joe Biden, I think, is he was basically the not Donald Trump candidate, yeah, and therefore. Expecting him to rise to the occasion and there's no getting away from the fact about his age and that sort of thing. Um, I think we're probably expecting too much, but it certainly leaves the Democrats in a very bad situation at the moment mm. um, I asked
1: you a couple of minutes ago what you might be considering putting down in your, your time capsule not of course to compromise the, the secrecy of the census um, Lauren I know that you specialise in climate issues uh, for the journal.ie and there might be some who might cynically wonder sure what's the point of filling out the time capsule because there may not be a world in a hundred years for anyone to see it have you given any thoughts to, to what you'd though, like to put are down are
2: going to be there in hundred years to read it yeah um, I, I suppose I probably will put down maybe something kind of uh, about you know Public kind of sphere like that, I think I'd be a bit cringed to write anything too personal. Yeah. <laughs> That's just me. I, I, <laughs> in case
1: you're mortified when they see the sentence in hundred years. Even though I
2: won't be there, I think it's just. Oh, like you're young enough; of... you might still be around in hundred years. <laughs> not like you know the rest of us that? old men. Maybe in the studio come up with some new technology by yeah. then. Yeah. Um. No. Probably. Maybe. Yeah. Probably. might something. Write something about climate or about kind of the, the, the situation in Ukraine or coming out of COVID or kind of something like that.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: make any thoughts on what you'd like to? I suppose in that sense, like just one word: sorry. Uh, <laughs> well, I suppose the other thing is. Um, you could put in that uh, basically, believe it or not, 100 years ago, Dublin, that sprawling metropolis that's taken over two thirds, three quarters of the country, was once a single entity in the Senior All-Ireland Football Championship.
1: <laughs> yeah. Now that it'll be different districts of Dublin that are fighting off each other for, for Neil Ring's loyalty. Um, thank you both very much for coming to the studio. Mick Clifford, who is special correspondent with the Irish Examiner and Lauren Bolden, reporter from the Journal.ie.